Keep your Bibles open to Romans chapter 12. Keep them open as we continue our overview of the book of Romans. Today we're going to be surfing across the tops of the waves in Romans chapters 12 through 16. And you will need to follow along in your copies of the scripture in order so that we can together see across the ocean and see into the ocean of God's riches and His truth. I invite you to stand with your Bibles and we're going to I'm going to read a couple key pieces of the rest of this section. I invite you to stand as, as I read, and then we're going, to, we're going to read together the doxology at the end of chapter 16. But first, let's go uh, to the end of chapter 13, where it says in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And then moving over to Romans chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And then at the end of chapter 15, verse 30. <clears throat> I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that, by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And now, chapter 16, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And then let's read together verses 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God 
to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And may he bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Romans chapter 12 begins a new section in the book of Romans, and this continues through the end of the, end of the book. In this section in Romans, the Apostle Paul takes the propositional truth that we find in chapters 1 through 11, and he begins to issue imperatives or commands. We often call these things application, things to do. How does the truth of God apply to our daily lives? Now, this is an important and a necessary consideration. But one thing that we must never forget is that application or imperatives, commands, flow out of truth and not the other way around. So we, we have to have a life that flows out of what is true and right and good. We cannot just do right and good without it being sourced from what is true. The application of Romans chapters 12 through 16 grows out of Romans 1 to 11. We cannot take one without the other. We must take them in their proper order. One comes first. The propositional truths of Romans 1 to 11 must come first. But this application that we find here, it, it comes out in a more general way than we might expect you see, many of us are kind of bottom line people. When we take a financial statement, we look at it and we go straight to the bottom line. That's what's really, what's really important. Many of us are a kind of get to the point people, okay? And so we want to see a direct and immediate connection from the doctrine to the application. And in preaching, many times there is a tendency, indeed almost a necessity, to seek to find the meaning of a text and then directly drive home its application. And of course, it helps if it's very immediate and earth-shaking and relevant to our lives. That's what we want. And there are times, there are times when that is what should happen and what can happen. But there are many other times when that's neither possible nor desirable. Now, we look for the practical applications of scriptures. Indeed, we demand them because we want to be shown that these truths are practical and relevant to us today. But the relevance and applicability of God's Word is not always that quick. It's not always that apparent. Let me give you an analogy here. As we look at Romans 1 to 11, uh, we can see it as something like a stew. Now, you never thought that I would talk about the Word of God like a stew, did you? But let me... Let me say it to you this way. So, the Apostle Paul here, he keeps adding in stuff to the stew. All right? One truth after another. And yes, they, they're all related because they're in the same stew. Okay? But he adds the carrots and the celery and the potatoes and some meat. And it's, it's all put into this stew. And he doesn't just make a direct connection or a direct application directly from the carrots to application, or directly from the celery to application. No, what he does is he makes application from the stew to our lives. It's the stew that feeds us. 
Now, yes, there are some juicy carrots in there and some crisp celery and some savory meat, and we delight in those things. But we, we delight in them in the context of the stew. And the importance of this is especially evident when we recall that some of the truths which Paul taught in Romans 1 to 11 seem, at least on the surface, to be contradictory. So how are we going to deal with this in terms of application? Paul taught the grace of God. But he also taught that the law is in effect. What are we going to do with that? How are we going to apply that? The Apostle Paul teaches the sovereignty of God, both in salvation and in providence. But he also teaches the responsibility of man. If we attempt to link each doctrine directly with an application, we may very well fall into the trap of emphasizing only one element of truth rather than the sum total of truth. That's why we have to have the stew. And so Paul's applications are based upon the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Paul's applications are based upon grace and the law. Paul's applications are based upon God's work in salvation and upon our striving in salvation. Indeed, even in this section of Romans 12 and onward, of more direct application, the Apostle Paul is going to be saying things that on the surface seem to be contradictory. So, for example, Romans 14 verse 10 says, Don't pass judgment on your brother. Romans 16 verse 17 says, Watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles. Avoid them. Sounds like judging to me. See, we have to take it all together. We can't, we can't just pick one little piece out and, and make an extrapolation from that. We must take the Word of God as a whole. We must apply every principle and every passage in view to what the whole text says. And perhaps Romans 12, 1 and 2 here illustrate this uh, better than anything else. This very famous text, most of us have heard this many times. I would say to you that this text has probably been misused. It has been abused. And some of us have some kind of, some kind of cringe factor that happens whenever this text is read. But this is a very powerful text. It's very beautiful. It's very pertinent. What this text basically says to us is that the scriptures are not given to us to throw out all the rules. The scriptures are not given to us as a set of rules to rigidly follow. The Bible, God's truth, is given to us so that we might have our minds transformed, so that we might have our minds renewed. The Bible is not given to us merely to provide us with a list of practices to do or a list of sins to avoid. The Bible is given to us to provide us with more than just a series of principles, as important as those are. The Bible is given to us, God's truth is given to us, to change our perspective, to change the way we think, to transform our way of seeing things, so that we can see life and ourselves from God's perspective. This new perspective, this new point of view, I believe 
That's what he's talking about when he talks about the renewed mind here in Romans 12, 2. This new perspective, this perspective that aligns with God's perspective, this is the basis for a transformed life. And so it is that there's not always a direct line between a particular teaching or doctrine and a certain application. Biblical truth is not necessarily to be understood that way in isolation, but in context, in the context of the whole of God's Word and in the context of our own lives. So, if you do not come away from this message today with a concrete area of application, that's, that's okay, that's fine. It doesn't bother me at all. I would hope, however, that our study of the book of Romans, of the entire book of Romans, would change your perspective significantly. That it would change the way you think about yourself, the way you think about God, the way you think about the world in which you live, so that when you do live in this world, you live differently. When you do think, you think differently. Differently from the world that you live in and differently from what you formerly practiced or thought. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Let, let me show you the basic outline of these last five chapters, and then we will come back and dive in a little deeper at a few spots. So first of all, chapters 12 and 13 are fit together, and these chapters open with a call to surrender our bodies and a call to the transformation of our minds. And then we have this explanation, this demonstration of how that works out in our daily lives in chapters 12 and 13. And he, and he says here in chapter 12, 1, that we are to present our bodies as a sacrifice because of and by the power of the mercies of God. Now, what are the mercies of God? Well, that's what he's just been talking to us about, writing to us about in the first 11 chapters of Romans. This is the gospel. This is the, the way God works in the world and in our hearts. The mercies of God. And it's because of this and by this that we are to surrender our bodies as a living sacrifice. These mercies of God empower and command the obedience of the faith. The Apostle Paul references that term at least three times in this book, in chapter 1 and in chapter 10 and again at the end of chapter 16. This call to the obedience of the faith. This gospel, these mercies of God require, yea, they demand a response, a response of obedience. This gospel, this faith, these mercies of God must result in a changed way of life. We must put off the sinful, selfish way of living, the way of the flesh, the way our world goes. We must put that off. We must be renewed in our thinking so that we can live in ways that are according to the gospel, that are according to the glory of God. And chapters 12 and 13 give us some specific examples and commands for what this looks like in real life. And the end of chapter 13 then wraps this up with a reminder that time is running out. So get up and cast off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Put off our sinful self, our sinful fleshly desires and actions and put on 
the Lord Jesus Christ. These are commands. These are imperatives. Then the second section here is in chapter 14 through chapter 15, verse 13. And this deals specifically now with how we relate together as brothers and sisters in the family of God, in the local church. And the context is especially areas where we disagree, areas where we have differences of opinion about how the Christian life ought to be lived out. And this, of course, is a continuation of the theme of living according to God's truth by a changed or renewed mind versus thinking and behaving like the world does. The goal here in these, in these verses, in this section, is not just unity with God and obedience to God as individuals. The goal here is how we together live together in harmony and unity in such a way that we live out the gospel together. And then the third and final section from chapter 15, verse 14, through the end of chapter 16, is the Apostle Paul's commendation. First of himself to the saints in Rome, and then his commendation of the saints in Rome to the saints in Rome. And then he gives us some final instructions about what to do with people who are divisive, who are heretics, and then this beautiful doxology which we read together. And that doxology sums up the main point of the book of Romans, the whole book. So now let's go back to chapter 12 and dig in a little bit. We'll spend most of our time in two areas this morning and what time we have left. The first two verses of Romans chapter 12, and then we'll look at Romans 14 and 15. Now these two verses here, Romans 12, 1 and 2, they are, as I said, the key verses here, key to understanding the rest of this book. They serve as a bridge between the glorious propositional truths of the gospel and the way this gets lived out in the real world. And so we see the appeal that the Apostle Paul makes here. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to do this. You see, the gospel is all about the grace and power of God. Yes, it's all about the power of God on our behalf. But the gospel isn't a passive thing. The gospel is not something that's done to us. The gospel is done in us. The gospel is an active work of God in us. Now, as I said at the close of the last sermon from Romans chapter, chapters 9 to 11, God must always act first in our salvation. He must take the initiative. Apart from God's initiative, His initiative of mercy, His initiative of grace and love, apart from that, none of us would be saved. But God's initiative, God's work in salvation demands a response on our part. And this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he talks about the obedience of faith. The Apostle Paul refers to it a number of times. God's salvation demands a response. But how does this work? Or rather, how does God work in us? And how do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? 
Well, these two verses right here in Romans 12, 1 and 2, tell us how this is. It says, By the mercy and grace of God, we surrender our bodies to Him and for His use. Living sacrifices. We give up our rights. We surrender to God. The Bible talks about this in terms of repentance. Repentance and faith. And repentance is the surrender, the giving up, the changing of our minds, the changing of our direction from our sin and ourself to God. And then we go about living in a way that conforms to God's way of thinking instead of the world's way of thinking. And this change, this change from living according to the world's way of thinking and living according to God's way of thinking, this change happens through the renewal of our mind. And the key here is our mind. The mind is the key to the Christian life. That's why non-Christians do not respond to Christian truth. It's because, as it says in 1 Corinthians 2, they cannot discern it. But the believer, for the believer, the mind is the key area where this happens. As I said, the, the word repentance carries the notion of a change of mind. Our thinking, our minds must be changed from old, ungodly ways of thinking to new, godly ways of thinking. Our minds must be renewed, our thinking must be changed if our lives are going to change. Now, interestingly enough, modern science has come to some of the same conclusions about this. They have found that repeated thoughts and repeated patterns of thinking actually change the cellular structure of our brains. And so it's like ruts in the road. After you drive down the muddy road a certain number of times, it's kind of hard to get out of the rut. And so our minds, through our patterns of thinking, establish these ruts. And these ruts are identifiable through brain scans. So at Harvard University, they did a study where they took three groups of people, none of which could play the piano. And they put one group in a room with a piano and an instructor, and for five days they learned how to play a piano. They put another group in a room with a piano, but that group didn't have anything to do with the piano. They didn't learn how to play it. They didn't think about playing it. The piano was just sitting there, and the people were in the room with it, but that was it. And then the third group they put in a room with a piano, and they told these people to imagine that they are playing the piano. Imagine that they are learning how to play the piano. At the end of five days, they took these, these groups of people and they did brain scans on them. And they found out that the first group, the ones who had been taught how to play a piano, their brains had changed. And the areas of their brains that had changed the most were the areas that related to the movement of their fingers and their coordination with their hands. Okay. The second group, the ones that were in the room with the piano but had nothing to do with the piano, their brains showed no change whatsoever. But the most surprising result was the third group, the ones who had imagined that they were playing the piano. The brain scans of those people showed almost the same changes as the people who had actually played the piano. Now, our world knows this in various ways. We ought to know it better than they. 
And our world has a way of dealing with this. Our world says, think positive. Think positive thoughts. That's how you fix your problem. That's how you, that's how you change your world. You think positive thoughts. But it's all up to you. All right? The Bible tells us something different. The Bible's way of thinking about thinking is different than the world's way of thinking about thinking. The Bible says that the Word of God and the Spirit of God is what changes our thinking. So we, we find this in Titus 3, where it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How did he do this? Listen. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So wherein the world thinks that they must just think positive, the Christian thinks, I must think God's thoughts. I must depend on God for His truth, for His Spirit to renew my mind. So, remember this if you forget everything else. The bottom line is that in our daily struggle against sin, which we all must be engaged in if we're going to be obedient to the faith, in our daily struggle against sin, the battle is won or lost in our minds, not in our physical bodies. If you want your behavior to change, then the way you think must change. And the way you think must change first. The only way you'll be able to live a godly life is if you think godly thoughts. And that means that you must be careful about the kinds of things that you think, the kinds of things you think about. And you must be intentional about filling your mind with God's thoughts. Philippians chapter 2, Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. We are called to have a mind that is patterned after Christ. And what kind of mind was that? Well, it says in Philippians 2, it was a mind that considered himself as nothing, considered himself humbly, became obedient to the Father, even to the point of death on the cross. So if you want to have a Christian mind instead of a worldly mind, the first thing you have to do is think rightly about yourself and rightly about God in terms of obedience. And so as we move on in chapter 12 from verses 3 and on, we see this is where the apostle goes immediately after he has told us how this change must happen through the renewal of our mind and how that because of that we will know what is God's will. Now he says, For by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Think soberly. Think with right judgment. And think about this according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Remember, what do you have that you were not given? What do you have that you were not given? 
And who gave it to you? We are dependent on God. And so as we think rightly and humbly and obediently about ourselves and our relationship to the Father, then we begin to live in these kinds of ways. And we have here the gifts of the Spirit that are lived out in zeal and in generosity. And then we have these marks of the true Christian. What, what does this look like in real life? And we have things that are, that are really seem backwards to us in our natural way of thinking. Bless those who persecute you. Who are you kidding? Love your enemies. Don't get revenge when somebody's wronged you. What's this? What's up with this? Ah, you see, this is the way a Christian thinks. This is not the way the world thinks. No, it's not. It's different. The Christian says, vengeance is God's. God will settle the score because I know God and God is a God of truth and God is a God of righteousness and holiness. He will not let this go unchecked. He will not let the score go unsettled. But the world doesn't know that God. So the world takes matters into their own hands. The world doesn't like to submit to authorities as we read about in Chapter 13, this isn't the world's way, but the Christian says, all authority is from God, and so I joyfully submit to it, even when it seems counterintuitive to my, to my selfish way. The apostle follows that with a commentary in verses 8 to 10, which we read earlier, about the fact that love is the fulfillment of the law. This is really what God is after. In the law, it's really what God is after as we reflect his gospel in our lives. God is after this, this fulfillment of the Ten Commandments, and it happens by love. Loving each other and loving God. And then in chapters 14 and 15, we have this kind of test case, a test case for us about how this is going to work out in some very pertinent and practical ways as it relates especially now to how we relate to each other in the church. See, we can talk about loving our enemies. and We can talk about blessing, blessing those who persecute us. But that's, that's harder when it gets closer to home. That's harder when it gets right here in our church. People who we know are supposed to be godlike in their thinking and godlike in their behavior. And yet we have these disagreements, we have these issues. And once again, it's very clear that the way we are expected to think and the way we are expected to act is counter to the way our world thinks and acts. You see, it's easy. It's easy for us to stand in judgment of each other. That's the natural thing to do, to stand in judgment of each other, especially when we see that someone is living in a way that's different than the way we think a Christian should live. This was a significant issue in the Roman church, and I think it's a significant issue for, here, for us here at Calvary. This is where we're at. 
And I, I'm sure this sermon, uh, this text deserves a sermon all to itself, and hopefully we'll get there in time. But let me just make a few summary statements based on what the Apostle Paul writes in these chapters. And if you don't like it, you can throw me out afterwards. But I'm going to do like the Apostle Paul in Romans 15, 15, where he says, I'm going to be bold. I'm going to tell you some stuff you need to hear. Okay? So don't shoot the messenger. This is the word of God. I think that we have some of the same dynamics here at Calvary that the Roman church had. Now think with me about this. We have a group of people here who've grown up in a religious community that had fairly highly defined and regulated code of ethics and behavior. And this is not unlike what the Jewish Christians in Rome would have experienced. At the same time, we have a group of people here who didn't grow up in that religious culture at all. And the Gentile believers in Rome didn't either. And then, we most likely have some people here who rebelled against that religious culture, who rebelled against that code of ethics and behavior, and who think that they have found freedom in Christ. And I imagine that there were some converted Jews in Rome who fell into this category as well. Now, it's fairly easy for any of these three groups to take offense or to be offended by another group. It is actually quite natural for us. There's a reason why ethnic groups and cultural groups band together. There's a reason. Birds of a feather flock together. We like to be people who are like us, people who think like us, people who do like us. That's where we're comfortable. And when somebody kind of cuts across that boundary, it's easy for us to misunderstand. It's easy for us to take offense. It's easy for us to offend. Because we don't understand where they come from, how they think, and how they see the world. And so, again, the command of Scripture is to think like God thinks. To subject ourselves and our thinking to His way of thinking. And this is how true unity in the church can come about. But it's natural for us when we face these kind of differences to point fingers, to accuse to dishonor those who seem to be in disagreement with us. This is the way the world works, but it's not the way Christ wants his church to work. Instead, this is what he says in chapter 14. We are first of all to realize that we will all be held accountable for our own actions. The first thing we need to know is that you are accountable to God for your own actions. That's the first thing you need to get straight. Okay? Each of us will give account for ourselves before God. That's where our chief concern must lie. Secondly, we must work hard to understand the motives of those who we disagree with. You see, what's important in God's economy is not always what's important in our economy. The Apostle Paul is very clear here. What's important to God is that we honor God. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So, we must 
We must be about that. And it says in, later on in chapter 14 that it is for God and His glory that we must live. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the honor and glory of God. That must be our motive. And so as we, as we see other people who don't seem to be doing Christianity the way we do it, we must work hard to understand their motive. Why are they doing what they're doing? It may be that they're doing it out of honor to God. It may be that they're not. But we need to try to understand and we need to call people to what's most important in God's economy. And let's be honest. This looks different for different people in different places at different times. Let's be careful when we assign motive. Thirdly, we must be very careful not to offend or cause a brother to stumble, even if we ourselves are free to do whatever it is. If it will offend our brother, then we must sacrifice and do what is good for our brother. The Apostle Paul says this in chapter 14, verse 16. Don't let what you think is good and right become something evil because by doing it you cause a brother to stumble. Rather, rather than criticizing, rather than accusing, let us work together for mutual upbuilding and peace. Now this is hard work, I'm telling you. This is difficult. This isn't going to be easy. The easy way is the way the world thinks. The easy way is to take the world's way of thinking, the easy way out, the, the, the way with least resistance. But God's way is different. God's way is harder. But God's way has different and better results. And it says here, rather than criticizing and accusing each other, let us work for mutual upbuilding and peace. And the apostles very honest in chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, this is going to take some patience. This is going to take some endurance. This is going to take the encouragement of the scriptures. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. In verse 7, let me ask you, how did Christ welcome you? How did Christ welcome you into the family of God, into the church of God? Did he wait until you were perfect before he welcomed you? No. Remember Romans chapter 5 says, For while we were yet sinners, while we were ungodly, Christ died for you. So we are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. So how is this going to work? How is this going to work here in our church this week? Well, first of all, let me tell you how the worldly way is. The worldly way of thinking is we see someone living in a way we disagree with. And so we talk about them to other people. And we say, did you see so-and-so? Did you see what they were wearing? Did you see what they were doing? We talk about them to other people. We malign their character. We assign motives. We keep our distance from them. We might even go to church leaders or those in authority and accuse them and say, do something about this person. That's not God's way. That's the worldly way. God's way 
is when we see someone whom we think is not living out the Christian life the way we think it should be lived, what do we do? We do what Christ did. We love on them. That's what it says here. We love on them. We don't go around behind their back and accuse them. We don't talk about them. No, we go and we love on them. Now, some of you don't know what love on them means. But if you go further south, about two states, you'll find out. That's where they do a good job at this. You love on them. In a self-sacrificing way, you serve them. You love them like Christ loved us. You pour your life into them. You invest in them. You get close to them. You try to understand where they're coming from, how they think, how they see the world, how they see themselves. And through all of this, and after all of this, and in all of this, we speak to the issues in a way that builds up rather than tears down. In a way that brings peace rather than division. That's the kind of church the Romans needed to be. And that's the kind of church we need to be. Now in conclusion, the apostle goes on here in chapter 15, the last part of the chapter. He goes on here to commend himself to the saints at Rome to ask for their participation in his work as an apostle, especially an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, I think he might have been rubbing it in here a little, okay? Because there are probably some Jewish Christians in Rome who didn't think too highly of the Gentiles. That's part of this whole problem. He's just been talking about it in chapters 14 and 15. And now he says, I plead with you, I urge you, participate with me in this ministry to the Gentiles. And he talks about how he is planning to stop off in Rome on his way to Spain. He anticipates visiting with the church in Rome. And he wants them, he asks them to strive together with him in their prayers to God. So that his travel will be safe and successful. Now they didn't know. And the Apostle Paul might not have known. But God surely did how the Apostle Paul would actually come to Rome as a prisoner of Caesar. And how he would live there and spend a lot of time there. But that was then, and this is now. And then the Apostle Paul takes up 16 verses in chapter 16. Get that, 16 verses the Apostle Paul takes up in this very weighty letter, and he just gives commendation of the saints in Rome to the saints in Rome. And you say, well, what's so significant about that? Well, I don't know for sure, sure, but I think, if I read this right, some of these names are Jewish names, and some of them are certainly Gentile names. The Apostle Paul is writing this personal letter to a church, and in this church are saints, people of God, who are struggling to get along. People who are struggling to be unified because of their differences in upbringing, in their cultural expectations. Some of these people have walked with the Apostle Paul in ministry. Some of them have served with him. And he is writing this letter, and he wants the church to honor those who faithfully serve, regardless of their ethnic background, regardless of whether they're men or women, regardless of their stature in society. I'm not sure, totally sure, all the names, which, which are Jewish and which are Gentile. But the point is, 
the Apostle Paul is calling them out on their antics. And he's saying, he's urging them to see the value and benefit in their brothers and sisters in the work of God, in the life of the church, even when they don't belong to our culture. And then in, in verse 17, just so they and we wouldn't be mistaken about the way we are to relate to those with whom we differ, he makes one final appeal in verse 17. Watch out for those who cause divisions. Now the word division here is the word sometimes translated heretic. If a person insists on being divisive, if a person insists on teaching doctrine contrary to God's revealed truth, if a person will not act in love and grace toward other Christians, then the Apostle Paul says, avoid them, have nothing to do with them. That is a heretic. That is different than what he was talking about in chapters 14 and 15, where there's a difference of opinion about how you live out the truth of the gospel, about how you live out the revealed word of God. Here's a person who doesn't want to be united. Here's a person who doesn't want to build up in love and peace and grace. Here's a person who doesn't want to think God's thoughts. It says here, this person, they are all about their own appetites. They're all about what they want. And again, that's a worldly way of thinking. And it's contrary to the way of Christ. The way of Christ says, I give, I serve, I sacrifice. I don't look out for myself, but for my brother. And so we are very clearly to separate from those who do not think God's thoughts, who do not think in a way that is transformed. But we are to give grace, all manner of grace and love and care to those whom God has called to be his people, to those whom we have disagreements with in matters of opinion about how we should live out this Christian life. But if, if they will not hear, if they will not serve, if they insist on causing divisions and creating obstacles contrary to the doctrine, then avoid them. And then the Apostle Paul gives some final words, and one of the curious things here is that the guy who held the pen had to get his little word in too. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. See, the Apostle Paul had someone else writing for him. He was probably dictating to Tertius. And Tertius wanted to make sure the saints in Rome knew that he too wished to bless them and greet them. The host, the house that Paul was staying, sent their greetings as well. It's interesting who this was, or who is mentioned next, Erastus, the city treasurer. And our brother, Quartus, greets you. That will be an interesting discussion for us when we come back and look more deeply into Romans chapter 13 in terms of our relationship to government. And then we have this glorious doxology, this kind of final summary statement of the whole book of Romans. Remember, chapter 1, verse 5, the apostle talks about the obedience of the faith. Chapter 10, the apostle talks about the obedience of the faith. And that's what he's after here. He wants the church in Rome to be obedient to the faith. And they will be obedient to the faith as they come to know the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, which is according 
to that revelation of the Old Testament. It's been disclosed through the prophetic writings. It's been made known to all nations. All of this according to the command of God. God takes the initiative. He is the one who reveals himself. He is the one who provides salvation. He is the one who demands a response of obedience, of faith. And all of this because he is the only wise God. He is the only one who knows everything, who knows how to think and how to live. And he is the one to whom must be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you for this glorious revelation of yourself in the book of Romans. And we pray that together as, as your people, that we would learn how to live well, that we would see that it is through the transformation of our minds that we will live well, according to your will, according to your desires, according to your ways. So help us in all of our life, in the things little and the things big, to think your thoughts, to pattern our minds, our thinking, and our life after you. And we pray that all of this will abound for your honor and for your glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Sing the last, first and last verse.